Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post's political podcast. I'm Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and for the next few weeks I'll be taking charge of this podcast as I attempt to fill the gaping void left by Jerry Scott's departure for Pastures New. I think it's actually going to be quite an exciting few weeks as I'm going to be using this opportunity to introduce you all to some of my very talented colleagues at the Yorkshire Post and give you an idea of the stories they're working on at Yorkshire's national newspaper. Our guest interviewee on the podcast this week is Paul Fleming who is the General Secretary of the Union Equity. So he represents the nation's creative practitioners and he has strong views on the shape the creative industries like theatres, TV production and even working men's clubs have been left in after the pandemic. But as I said, we're also going to be joined each week by one of the Yorkshire Post's own journalists for an insight into their work. And I'm very pleased to say that first on my list is Greg Wright, Deputy Business Editor and already someone Pod's own country listeners will be very well acquainted with. Um, Greg has done some fantastic work on the loan charge scandal. And you might remember we spoke to him a few weeks ago about the hundreds of thousands of workers excluded from government coronavirus support. So, uh, Greg, hello and welcome back. Are you are you well? I'm well, thank you, Rob. And it's um, another fine day in Ilkley. The sun is shining again. So whenever, whenever I actually talk to you um, for Pod's own country, the sun comes out. So it's great. It's, great. it's always Excellent. good to appear on the show because the weather seems to improve, but it's it's fine. How, how are things with you? Are you okay? Not bad. Yeah, not bad. It's also nice and nice and sunny here. The kids are the kids are at school and nursery, got a nice quiet house. So it's all 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 shaping up quite nicely. Um so what we're talking about today, Greg, is uh, mortgage prisoners, which is the, the latest topic you're focusing your attention on. Now, a lot of people listening to this will have mortgages. I actually, uh, I'm actually lucky enough to have one myself, as it means I'm uh, able to buy my own home, which many people are not able to do. But actually, for many people with a mortgage, there have been changes to the rules in recent years, which make it uh, for them virtually impossible to move to a more affordable deal. So can you tell us a bit a bit more about that? Yeah, it's a terrible story. Um, I mean, you've got thousands of people here who took out mortgages, in some cases many years ago, in good faith, and find themselves effectively trapped into paying much higher rates of interest than they should do. Many of the people, and it's estimated by campaigners to be almost 250,000 of them altogether, they took out their home loans with lenders that had to be rescued during the financial crisis, and they include Northern Rock and obviously Bradford and Bingley, and have since had their mortgage sold on to another provider. Now, what this means is that these new providers often don't offer any cheaper deals that people can switch to. So, in effect, they are prisoners. They're trapped. They're paying higher rates of interest than they would really need to uh, compared to other consumers. They're often uh, rejected when they apply for cheaper mortgages because they do not meet these toughened borrowing criteria which were brought in after the 2008 financial crash, even if they're keeping up with repayments. It's all very topical at the moment because there was a, a window of opportunity or a bit of a light of hope for the mortgage prisoners um, earlier this month. Um, they're now very angry. They feel disappointed, distressed and betrayed after MPs voted to reverse a measure that could potentially have made lives easier for mortgage prisoners and ease the financial burden of being faced uh, with such a high uh, rate of interest. Now, the House of Lords had initially amended the financial services bill to require the regulator to introduce an interest rate cap for the affected households. So these are the mortgage prisoners. It would also have ensured access to fixed rate deals for some of them. Now, however, 
when it went back to the House of Commons, MPs voted by 355 votes to 271 to remove this amendment from the bill, despite many MPs speaking up on behalf of the mortgage prisoners. Now, the people speaking up included Kevin Hollinrake, who is um, an MP, obviously, for Thirsk and Malton. He's been a very outspoken campaigner on behalf of victims of financial services misconduct. And he said it's the government of the day's responsibility to sort this because this was a problem which was of the government's making. The fact that this was that these um, lenders were bailed out and subsequently, obviously, these people who uh, acted in good faith, kept at the mortgage payments, now facing these very high rates of interest. Now, speaking of the House of Commons, John Glenn, who is the Treasury Minister, said he took the issue extremely seriously, but didn't believe this particular measure was the best way of handling this particular problem. He said that he was guided by guidance from the Financial Conduct Authority, which says that half of the 250,000 borrowers within active firms meet the normal risk appetite of lenders and could switch if they chose to without any form of government intervention. He also said of the remaining 125,000 who cannot switch, 70,000 in arrears, and therefore many would not be able to secure a new deal. And these borrowers need to work with their lenders to agree a more appropriate plan. He then said, he then claimed that the remaining 55,000 who are with an active lender up to date, but who cannot switch are paying an average of only 0.4% more than the similar borrowers. Now, what I must say is the mortgage prisoners do dispute this and say that the situation is much worse. Um, they issued a statement afterwards saying that the vote marked continued failure to put right the inaction of successive governments, which they say has seen them pay for the iniquity of the regulated banks in 2008, increasing interest rates and then selling off their homes to foreign and domestic vulture funds, as they call them. So this particular measure isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, one of the most outspoken campaigners on behalf of the mortgage prisoners has been Martin Lewis, the consumer champion, who's basically uh, backed the, the mortgage prisoners action group. And after he tweeted that he was sad that the amendment had fallen, as it would have um, been able to keep up to help people who'd, who'd fallen into what he described as financial hell because of the, the, this cap was so essential. And he said that the cap wasn't a balanced long-term solution, but in lieu of anything else, he believed that for those on closed book mortgages, it was a good stopgap while other solutions are worked upon. So as it stands at the moment, we're in a situation where the government has committed to engage with the mortgage prisoners, the government has committed to talk to them about this and see what they can do next. But there's been no firm plan of action as yet decided. So many people who are mortgage prisoners are now extremely anxious to find out what's going to happen next. Now, there's overwhelming evidence that uh, people who are mortgage prisoners are facing real financial hardship. Uh, I spoke to mortgage prisoners over Christmas and said that some of them, because of their, they're paying above the odds to stay in their own home, are finding it hard to, to feed and clothe their families, particularly because the whole economy has been squeezed due to the pandemic. Um, I also have studied a report which has been submitted by the mortgage prisoners, which says how in many cases it's the children of the, of the um, mortgage prisoners who are facing the toughest times and toughest hardships, particularly in terms of their mental health. Uh, one parent who's a mortgage prisoner, the young daughter said, um, talking about her daughter, she never asks for much but I feel I fail her all the time due to the financial hell I'm living in. Another, another mortgage prisoner said that uh, my children had to live with the stress of our financial situation since the day they were born. So some really heartbreaking stories about the mortgage prisoners who include many people from Yorkshire, include many people who took out uh, mortgages with Bradford and Bingley many years ago. 
And at the moment, there's no clear sign when this will end. So the government has committed to continued dialogue with the mortgage prisoners, and we'll wait and see what happens next. They've also committed to work with the Financial Conduct Authority to try and ease their plight. But I think the, the key issue now is when will action be taken? Because it does seem incredibly unfair that you have a group of people who are trapped with their current lenders, which are often inactive or not authorised to offer new products, and they've done everything correctly. But that they are, to my mind, the forgotten victims of financial crash. 13 years after the crash, the government chose to bail out the banks and support the banks. The big question is, why on earth can't the government then act decisively now to support and, and protect the, these mortgage prisoners who are in intense uh, financial anguish and, and really facing extremely hard times as we come out of the pandemic? Yeah, it's a very, very valid question. And um, the fact that uh, it's one of the people who are campaigning against it strongly in our region is Kevin Hollenrake, who is a Conservative MP, you know, he's not someone who rebels against the government on a, a frequent basis, suggests that this is not a, a party political issue, is it? Not at all. And uh, in the House of Lords, it was there was a lot of cross-bench support for this uh, measure. I mean, many people were, were deeply moved by the issues that have been raised. And a number of Conservative MPs did rebel against their own government to vote um, in favour of these measures and to support the mortgage prisoners. I think, once again, it highlights how misconduct in the banking sector, um, in terms of the pain that that is inflicted, it always goes to the victims who are the customers. The customers suffer the most. Uh, if you look at the way in which uh, history works out, the people at the top of the banks were bailed out. They've done quite nicely. Thank you very much. Many of the senior executives who are at the top of the, the big banks who are actually complicit or involved in the banking uh, crisis are now doing very nicely. Um, they've obviously been rewarded financially. Their reputations may have been affected to a certain extent. They're not suffering. The people actually suffering are the people who were drawn into this saga. And this is a situation that could affect any of us. It was pure bad luck. The, the very point when the financial crisis hit and the banks imploded, these people happened to have mortgages with these lenders. And it, this was then sold on uh, later to inactive lenders which limits the ability of these customers to be able to find a better deal. It was just pure bad luck that tens of thousands of people are facing this crisis. And I think that the, the government does have a moral obligation. I know Martin Lewis as well, who is the consumer champion, has funded research into this, actually come up with a potential model which might be usable so people can actually um, find a way out of the mortgage prisoner crisis. And I think that given the amount of work that's gone into this, and the fact that fact he's had academics involved in devising these strategies, the government does have, a, I think, a moral obligation to act and do something about this. So we've heard the words from the, um, the Treasury. I know Rishi Sunak himself, I think, when questioned by Martin Lewis, said he was willing to intercede and do something on behalf of the mortgage prisoners. The question now is, when will the action take place? And when will we see something decisive to really ease the suffering of the mortgage prisoners who have been facing a financial crisis for so many years now yeah absolutely well greg please do keep us uh informed and updated about this as, as it goes along we'll, we'll have to check back in with what's going on with that story in the next few weeks and um, greg right thank you very much for speaking to us and um now let's have a listen to pod's own country's guest interviewee this week 
So as we record this podcast, we're only a few days away from the latest stage in the easing of lockdown restrictions. And there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, Theatres and cinemas can reopen and performances and large events can restart, but with limits on audience numbers, obviously. All of which is some much needed good news for the many thousands of people working in the creative and art sector in our region and across the country who have had a torrid time during the three lockdowns as their places of work have closed and job opportunities have slowed to a trickle. Speaking on their behalf is our guest today, Paul Fleming, who took over last year as the General Secretary of the Trade Union Equity, representing more than 47,000 performers and creative practitioners from actors and singers to puppeteers and circus performers. Born in Birmingham, he was the first member of his family to go to university and has had jobs, including acting press secretary for the New Jersey Democratic Party, which sounds fascinating, uh, before becoming an organiser for the community trade union, as well as working in Scunthorpe in northern Lincolnshire and the rest of Yorkshire. Following his election to Equity's top job last year, he is also the first LGBTQ plus general secretary of a major UK trade union. So it's great to welcome you to uh, Pods and Country, Paul. How are you? Thanks very much. I'm done very well. Yeah, it's good to have you. Good, good. So um, I was reading one of your speeches from last year and you talk about growing up in Birmingham in the 1990s in what you describe as a community divided and ravaged by social and economic chaos. So with that being the case, what was your entry point to becoming passionate about uh, the arts, given you know, given your job now? Mm. I mean, it's one of the things that's often misunderstood about who we are as a trade union um, is that we're somehow representing a group of people who are very different, radically different to other groups of workers. And of course, there are idiosyncrasies about who our members are and why they do what they do. I mean, um, they, they are passionate um, about their careers, um, they're passionate about the um, performances that they put on or facilitate putting on, but fundamentally at their core they are working people. Um, and, and I often say the function of all trade unions is to help working people flourish as artists. It's, it's you know, we, we, we secure better terms and conditions, improve wages, um, improve work-life balance, provide education and so on, and actually that's about a flourishing of a human being as more than an economic unit. Um, the function of equity is that, but it's also to turn artists into working people, is to raise their consciousness and the consciousness of others that actually the things that they suffer at work are exactly the same as everything else. Whether it be sexual harassment or low pay, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has actually uh, been a catalyst to revealing the depths of a pandemic of precariousness that is much older and much longer in the arts, but actually affects all working people in a very sort of equal way. So my experience growing up in Birmingham and working in Scunthorpe and working with um, steel workers and people in the public sector, um, you know, very much informs how I support and, and what I believe um, working people um, who are artists um, deserve. Yeah, absolutely. So you you were just telling me before uh, you went on air that you you uh, spent some time working in uh, Scunthorpe and in, in the Steel Union, and that sort of took you all over uh, all over the Yorkshire region. Can you tell us a little bit about about that and what that involved? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a part of the world that um, you know is is much derided Scunthorpe, but I actually have an awful lot of um, affection for. It's a really I've, I've never been in a stronger or more affectionate community. It's a really really fantastic place. My partner is from just outside of Scunthorpe. I met them when um, I was working up there, and um, actually going across Yorkshire with its incredible history of trade unionism, it always has an incredibly rich history of of really deep and meaningful culture not only the range of actors and practitioners, whatever, that have come from the region, but also the way that you still have 
um, working men's clubs, the way that actually grassroots working class art is up there along with some of the best venues in the country um, for, 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 for members to work in. I mean, you know, um, the Bradford Alhambra is one of the best theatres to go to on the touring circuit. You've got an incredible creative scene in Sheffield um, and in Leeds. Um, but, you know, there's some excellent community work that's happening in Bradford. There's some excellent community work happening um, out in South Yorkshire that's you know, genuinely transforming people's lives. And when I was working up there, I was very conscious of that. I, do, I wasn't working for performers. I wasn't working in the entertainment industry. But, I, it, you know, it's an inherently creative place. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, I, 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 I miss it. My, one of my greatest regrets... Um, uh, you know, as, as, as much as I've enjoyed my time at Equity, was having to leave Yorkshire and Humberside. I'll tell you that much. Excellent. Well, that's that's very nice to hear. Um, now, when people think of Equity, or at least some people, they might think of getting an, an Equity card. I think there's a, a section in the the Channel Four drama It's a Sin where the main character talks about getting an Equity card so he can be an actor. But actually, it's not the case anymore, is it? That you have to be an Equity member to act in the UK. But can you take us through what? The role, what role your union performs now in, in 2021? It's it's funny. I mean, we are still known for the clothes shop, and the clothes shop ended the year I was born. So I'm I'm genuinely the first post clothes shop general secretary. Um, but 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 essentially, what the union has done very successfully is organise a sort of working person who is now very common. Um, and when we talk about the gig economy, sometimes people think that gig comes from like gigabytes or something techy. Well, it, it doesn't. It comes from gigging actors, gigging musicians, people who are going out and doing um, sort of freelance style work. And the function of the union really is to organise a highly precarious group of working people um, because they love their art, because they love what they do, because they really want to deliver meaningful performances, high quality entertainment. They want to make people happy. They want to make people, they, they, they want to provoke thought and social debate and change. That actually does make them quite vulnerable. It can make them quite um, easy to exploit. And we've seen a lot of stories around the Me Too scandals and so on that hit our industries particularly hard um, because our members are particularly vulnerable. And what we do primarily is negotiate terms and conditions for those people. And it would surprise, I think, a lot of your listeners to know that, you know, if, if, if you go and watch a touring musical, 75% of the people on that stage are trade union members. If you come into the West End of London, probably 85% of the people on that stage are trade union members. You turn on a soap, um, you are watching um, probably, again, 60 70% trade union members, and 90-odd percent of British TV drama is made on a union agreement. Um, uh, you know, average trade union membership in this country um, is less than 10% in the private sector. It's, you know, you know, we, we, there are enormous challenges for the movement as a whole, but we actually have incredibly high density and incredibly high use of our collective agreements. Um, and having to win for those working people in that way, as well as organising for the legitimately self-employed, the truly self-employed, um, such as our variety members who are club singers or clowns or burlesque artists or uh, children's entertainers, um, people doing really valuable work, really, really, really important. I mean, I know uh, anybody who's uh, got friends and family in care homes who've been so isolated over the last 12 months our members going in and providing art and entertainment and talking to them, very often highly skilled um, specialists in terms of dementia or, or, or you know, facilitating um, uh, workshops and helping people combat loneliness and all of the problems age brings. It's a very, very serious business. And we look after those people as well, providing them with insurances, um, helping them when, they don't get, when they're not paid properly supporting children's entertainers who get paid in lemonade or, you know, rocking up at a party and told they're not wanted anymore or, you know, getting 
shouted off stage in a working men's club, you know, those are the people that we're there to make sure that they have dignity in the work that they do. Um, so yeah, that's our kind of our role. And the legacy of the clothes shop has been is a strong union, and the legacy of the clothes shop is that high membership, um, which you know is a, is a kind of an untold story in British trade unionism. I think you know you, you talk about the most highly unionised people in this country. Who would you think of? Well, you know, steel workers maybe, or miners, or would you think about maybe you think about nurses and, and uh, teachers? But actually, some of the most highly unionised. Um, are the performers, the stage management, the creative team members whose work you enjoy every day and whose work has got us through the lockdown. I mean, key workers in a very peculiar way. I mean, where would we have been in the last 12 months if you hadn't had Netflix, with whom we have a union agreement, if you hadn't had the BBC, if you hadn't had, um, you know, recorded productions from um, all over the country, including from um, you know, places like The Crucible and so on, all working on union agreements. Yeah, well, no, my my evenings would have been a, a desolate wasteland without the the things that you've, you've just described. Um, now, of course, the last year, like it has been for so many people, has been incredibly tough for people working in in the arts. I mean, you 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 speak to these people all the time; they're the people that you represent. Can you give us an idea of just how hard it's been? And are, are you worried that many people will have to leave the jobs that they love for, to work in other? perhaps more secure areas because it's simply not sustainable to work in the arts at the moment, given everything that's, that's going on. I mean, like I say, there's a pandemic of coronavirus, but there's a pandemic of precariousness. And a lot of the things that our members are facing aren't new, but they're more extreme than they've ever been. Um, and if we talk very specifically about coronavirus support, um, you know, out of our um, 48,000 members, 40% of them haven't had a penny from furlough or the self-employed income support scheme. Um, both because they are um, freelance in the first instance and so not eligible for furlough, but very often their low wages or the sporadic nature of their work has meant that they've been excluded from um, SEISS, which is the freelance um, equivalent. So actually, you know, how extreme would it be? I'm sure there'll be lots of your listeners who are sat at home who've benefited from uh, furlough, who've benefited from SEISS. Well, 40% of our members haven't. And a much larger portion of them have received a, a mere matter of hundreds of pounds out of the SEISS scheme every round. And that is a real assault on who can be an artist in this country. And it's why everybody should care. This isn't a load of sort of um, whinging lovies about themselves. This is fundamentally, when you go and see your kid in a, ch in, in a school play, do you worry if they're really talented about whether they can afford to get on? as a professional actor. If your kid comes to you and wants to go on stage for a living, wants to be on Netflix, wants to be in a Hollywood blockbuster, do you worry that you've got the means to support them? Because what has happened over the last 12 months is that an awful lot of members, particularly members from black backgrounds, from working class backgrounds, our disabled members, and disproportionately women, have been told, you're not entitled to think you can be an actor because you haven't got that money in your back pocket. You can't be a member of stage management, a director, a designer, because actually you haven't got the connections to see you through a period of no work. And that is a real assault on the culture you consume, on the entertainment you enjoy, um, and on the social conversations we can have. And it is extreme. And we are seeing uh, people leave the industry and they're the people that we need um, to, to, to hear the stories of and, and, and see them uh, portraying characters. We are a real precarious moment yeah yeah absolutely and uh, i guess if the government were, were here they would uh they would uh, highlight uh, their uh, what they describe as this world-leading 
1.6 billion pound rescue package to help weather the impact of coronavirus. And we quite often get press releases about the uh, the culture uh, recovery fund and the different organisations that it's supporting. But I know equity as a union uh, are very critical of the what the government the, the support the government has provided. What what would you like to, what would you like to have seen the government do more of? And where specifically have they fallen short in your in your view? I mean, they've, they've failed by their own metrics because 40% of the fund is unallocated because the, what they've done is they've designed a fund that doesn't meet the needs of the sector. So it's not big enough, but actually the strings they've attached to it mean that people aren't getting it. And they can talk ha- however much they like about how much they've allocated. It's whether people have actually needed the money for what it's intended, and they haven't. So it shows they haven't spoken to the sector. It shows they don't understand the needs of the sector. Um, we as a union put a million pounds into our benevolent fund for our members. The Arts Council of England has put two million pounds. So the Arts Council of England supporting not just freelance performers, um, directors, designers and so on, but also musicians and people working in galleries and visual artists has put in twice as much as a trade union representing a corner of them. And the government's cultural recovery fund is not accessible to the workforce. It is not designed for the workforce. And our industry, like any industry, is fundamentally about people. You don't go to a theatre to see the seat or to enjoy the air conditioning. You go to the theatre to watch the work on the stage, to see the design sets, to look at the costumes, to enjoy the music, to enjoy the performances that you watch. You know, you, you, you go there to see people and stories you understand. And actually, the government is not allocating money for work to happen. And that is incredibly damaging. It's damaging for local economies. You know, if, if we, you know, there are a lot of places in the hospitality trade who are going to struggle. You know, if you think about somewhere like Bradford, you know, that beautiful uh, uh, square that is in front of the, um, the town hall, it is alive because of the theatre that is in that town. If you think about cast in Doncaster and how that revolutionised the nighttime economy and you know, very often small independent restaurants, pubs, clubs, which actually depend on that happening. Now, w- if we're not given money as a sector to do work, which is what we wanted, then actually all of those ancillary industries are going to suffer. And those are precarious people as well. Those are people in hotels, those are people in bars, pubs, clubs. So actually they were not using it as a stimulus for the rest of the economy. They were using it to basically prop up building projects. It was going into the pockets of buildings and bosses and not into the pockets of the workforce or into culture, art and entertainment for people to consume. It gets even worse if you're not one of those institutions. If you're a children's entertainer, if you're a club singer, you know, those sorts of people and the places that they work already under threat. You know, you'll have listeners all over, you know, Yorkshire, absolute heart of the working men's club as far as I'm uh, concerned. How many of them were under threat uh, before coronavirus and how many are gonna struggle um, when it comes back? I mean, keeping you know, live entertainment works and keeping those venues open and making them places you wanna go, Without a workforce to do that, it's going to fail. And, and realistically, you know, what should the government have done instead? It should have had introduced a basic income guarantee for artists. It should have said, if you're in the creative workforce, this is a guaranteed amount of money that you'll be able to receive for this period. There are adjustments they could have made to the self-employed income support scheme. I won't bore you with them, but they were very simple, very easy, and dirt cheap, but they didn't want to make them. You know, when you have governments across Europe considering better terms and conditions and support for artists to get them through. In Ireland, talking about an income guarantee for their creative sector, and we all know how important culture is to the whole image, the whole, the whole uh, life of, of, of Ireland, it's no different in Yorkshire to my mind. 
um, and actually supporting those institutions in a way that they that they needed to put work on. That that is our those are our two two, two key criticisms. And you know, as I say, with forty percent unallocated and forty percent of our members not receiving any money, the government's failed on its failed in its own metrics. Yeah, yeah, and. I know another area of concern for, for you is the way that arts funding is distributed more generally and sort of pre-pandemic. Uh, this is a, a subject we've covered before at the Yorkshire, Yorkshire Post, the way that uh, the various arts council organisations operate. I think there's been criticism that arts council England is, is too focused on London and the South East compared with the North and even too focused on urban areas compared with rural areas now you've you've said that the current funding structures uh, are not fit for purpose so what's wrong with them in your view and how would you how would you change them i mean we're of the view that constantly asking for more money to be allocated in in, in, in an adequate way is a folly um and you know just just, just to highlight i know it's it's, it's uh, um, if, if your listeners will indulge me i'll give you a lancashire example rather than a yorkshire one but i mean you've got manchester where you're spending five pound a head on culture as compared to Lancashire as a county where you're getting about 50 pence. I mean, that is an enormous disparity between town and city. And actually, yes, there is a a north-south divide. There's also, it has to be said, an east-west divide in an awful lot of culture and entertainment, both broadcast and um, live performance. You consider the amount of work that goes on in Manchester, Bristol, and so on down that western seaboard. And taking Birmingham to the east, you think about how many stories you hear from Norfolk, um, all up through Lincolnshire and Yorkshire and so on. I mean, you know, a, a hopefully relocation of Channel 4 to Leeds will make a difference to that. But, you know, right up into Newcastle and so on, there is a creative, there is a creative industries division as well between East and West. The only way to fix that is to democratise, regionalise um, and cooperatise the arts councils and their funding and the BBC. And the BBC, because this isn't just a conversation about live performance, it's about the whole infrastructure of art and entertainment. The Arts Council, if, it, if they were properly regionalised and the funding decisions lay in the hands of the artists and audiences that live in those parts of the world, you would end not only the disparities in funding, but also... Um, the, the, the fundamental flaws uh, that, that lie within it. I'm just to give a really good example of, of, of where this is going really wrong at the minute. You know, the Arts Councils have a policy of only funding um, organisations up to about 30%. Well, that, that that's a really problematic figure. If you're a children's theatre company, you can only sell children's theatre tickets at a lower rate than, uh, uh, the, 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 than a mainstream um, performing thing. It forces places like um, Sheffield, um, the, the Crucible or um, you know, uh, Stephen Joseph uh, Theatre in Scarborough to engage in commercial activity, to have to put on a West End show to survive, to have to open a restaurant or a cafe to survive, to have to do commercial activity. And what's happened in the pandemic? You can't do any of that. So actually we've got institutions receiving your money and mine in, in such a way that is so small that they don't actually meet the needs of the communities or the artists that they engage. Now, if you regionalise, cooperatise and democratise it, put the voices of those artists and audiences at the table, you're actually going to fix that problem as well. You're going to see a commercial success. You know, th- things like you know, small subsidised theatres produce successes like, uh, well, I say small, you know, the RSC isn't small, but you know, Matilda on the West End is one thing. But you know, it was a war horse was, was, was an amalgamation of, of different subsidised theatres to put it on. You know, it's, um, and, and you know, everyone's talking about Jamie on the West End, you know, a phenomenal Yorkshire success and a, a West End blockbuster now turning into a film. You know, 
that you, you can make those funding decisions, but you can also say, do you know what? I want smaller scale, less commercial work going out in towns and uh, in, in, in market towns around Yorkshire and villages in and around uh, Rotherham or, 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 or wherever, and actually giving people an opportunity to participate in high quality art, consume high quality art and become professional artists. You can make those decisions as a community and that will fix those structural problems. Simply asking for more money doesn't do the job. I'd like to finish the interview, if I can, on a, a positive note, because, you know, there's, there's lots of, you made lots of really interesting points there, but, you know, it is uh, the rest of the year in, for, for some people in the arts, I guess, is, is, you know, there's a lot to look forward to for the creative sectors and the your, your equity members, both in Yorkshire and nationwide with, uh, you know, the, the easing of lockdown restrictions just a few days away. It, is it a very exciting time for them, knowing they're going to seem to be able to return to the work they love, or are, they, or are there still lots of worries for them about their about their livelihoods, or is it a mixture of, a mixture of the two? Um, I I would uh, I don't want to end your, the, the interview on a low note, but honestly, there is a sense there is a there's a real sense of terror. There's a real sense of terror about whether. The industries will ever return in a way that we understood that we understood them before. There is a worry about bosses taking advantage of um, this period of time, and that's what lots of working people will feel that actually there's going to be an attack on their terms and conditions. They will be the people to pay for this crisis. Um, but and and there's also an anxiety that um, how cared for are we? This has really put the place of artists in. In, in the context of a national conversation. And if you want a dynamic growing sector of the economy that is low carbon, that is socially responsible, that is part of driving forward progressive conversations about change. And actually, from a foreign policy point of view, Downton Abbey has more of an influence on the way this country is seen than the nuclear bomb does. Producing high quality art is one of the reasons why people want to visit Yorkshire, want to visit uh, the UK. Want, you know, what, 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 it's, it's part of our global standing. All of that is at risk because of the experience of the last 12 months. If, if you want some good news, if you want some more positive things to finish on, um, it's perhaps not in live performance where the structural problems of having to pack out houses and make profit is stifling both the commercial and the subsidised sectors. And as I was saying before, it's a fundamental problem of the, of the funding model. There is a glimmer of hope if you look towards recorded media. We've achieved some uh, good collective groups. We're the first union in the world to have a collective agreement with Netflix. Shows you how strong we are. And the BBC's announcement recently that they're going to try and move 60% of drama production outside of London is excellent news for members um, living and working in um, and around Yorkshire and, and also for audiences in Yorkshire to actually stop having people with slightly dodgy accents and, and, and more opportunities for local talent to get involved. A, a decentralisation of the BBC, certainly on paper, sounds like a really good, strong start as a reaction against it. It needs proper funding, it needs a proper respect for terms and conditions, there's a lot of battles to be had about it, but for something that could be the foothold um, of a better future in um, performance and entertainment, um, I, th I think at the minute we're looking to the BBC, an institution that has to be reformed but protected. That sounds like a whole area, a whole other conversation that we could that we could have. But uh, well, that's a great glimmer of hope to uh, uh, end on. Um, Paul Fleming, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. 
So thanks for listening to Pod's Own Country. We really appreciate your support. And you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you usually get your podcasts. Do please leave us a review if you like what you hear. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.